Our guest today is Jillian Tang, Chief Investment Officer of Ledger Prime. Ledger Prime is a multi-strat quant hedge fund trading and investing across the digital asset spectrum. After graduating from MIT, Schilling started a career in Wall Street as a quant trader on prop desks at UBS and Merrill Lynch, where he focused on algo volatility trading in equities and commodities. Schilling is no stranger to starting businesses. He's a seasoned tech entrepreneur. Prior to launching Ledger Prime, he was a co-founder of Y Combinator-backed insure tech startup World Cover, a socially conscious alternative to traditional investment avenues. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Most of my life, I'm in New York right now. I grew up midtown Manhattan. Didn't, didn't venture far. You know, true, true at heart New Yorker. Don't even have a driver's license right now. You know, went, went away from college, but came immediately back as, as many New Yorkers tend to do and still very close with all my childhood friends that I grew up with. So yeah, you know, from, from that perspective, not much has changed. So you went to, to high school in the city. Yep. How did you end up on Wall Street? Yeah, I would say it was um, kind of convoluted. I, I've always been interested in the markets. I, I um, you know, as a child, I, I kind of lived through the tech bubble, you know, late 90s. You know, my, my parents weren't in finance, but certainly, you know, I think they caught some of the bug of, of just day trading and um, investing in general. So I think, you know, I was very impressionable as a teenager to seeing, you know, my dad like day trading and whatnot, and it seemed like pretty easy money. <laughs> um, so that, that always kind of stuck with me. And, and I think I was kind of just, just liked financial markets or just, you know, playing cards and, you know, gambling per se. And, and that always sucked to me. But uh, throughout most of my kind of education, I was doing the sciences. So I went to MIT, studied chemical engineering, you know, was kind of on the, the science you know, track. I kind of realized early on that I, I probably didn't want to pursue being a chemical engineer or a doctor. But I always enjoy the subjects and, and the sciences. And, and so stuck with it for me for me, you know, studying and education perspective. But, you know, during the summers, I, I would basically intern um, on uh, Wall Street desks, right? And I think you were at a time back then where quant finance, uh, electronic trading, et cetera, was really kind of just taken off. Wall Street was, you know, open to hiring anyone that could code or understand math. They didn't really care whether you understood, you know, the markets or finances, uh, uh, you know, the, the financial aspect of things behind the scenes. And so my first internship was actually at Lehman okay. in 2000, I want to say 2006. On the electronic trade, um, on their electricity trading desk. So that was actually really interesting. It was kind of my first exposure. You know, you kind of understand a little bit about the power markets and whatnot, but, but really, at the end of the day, it was a highly quantitative just just market. And I just mostly just helped out with the programming side of things, right? And then, you know, I interned again the following winter as an extern on Merrill Lynch's subprime mortgages desk. So, you know, I, I had a. <laughs> It was kind of right before everything came crashing down that that spring and summer, um, 2007. But that was, you know, extremely fascinating. That, that was more, uh, I would say, financial kind of knowledge heavy, just in terms of products, you know, subprime mortgages, packages, and that. Um, so that. But that was, you know, really interesting just seeing the whole credit crunch, really the, the first um, major kind of, you know, uh, uh, and, and so I think I took a lot away from that experience. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I, I got an offer to join the what was back then called the automated market making desk. It was a electronic vault trading desk, essentially uh, trading listed options, mostly equities, but algorithmically, electronically as a market maker. But it was a prop desk at the time at Merrill. And it was a good time, right? I think it was the, the markets were, were kind of falling apart, extreme, extreme volatility. And as a vault trader, that, that's kind of the best time to be in, in the markets. So we're doing great. Obviously, you know, Merrill Lynch was, was acquired. 
our desk was kept on and, and um, made it to the transition to Bank of America, where you know I um, I stand on for a bit. There's a lot of things to unpack here. First of all, when is your earliest recollection of writing a line of code? <laughs> I mean, it was it was during my well, it depends on how you define code. If you define like simple HTML or like Excel, maybe even like VBA, it was probably in like middle school, right? Like you just go to like computer you know, classes. But really, I, I would say I didn't really start kind of programming for um for more heavily until until college right um so chemical engineering you know mit they they you know it's mandatory you, you learn how to program it was mostly out to the data sciences so like matlab or r you know some python but yeah you know really after i i graduated on the desk um you know we, we did a lot more heavy duty kind of programming um obviously i wasn't a developer i was, I was focusing more on like the back test and research and, and data science aspect of things but um they use a language on, on that on the Merrill desk called pearl which you know for, for those that are um a developer would know very well but it's a pretty old school yep. language um not let's say not many people use it anymore but uh yeah so that, that was kind of my uh my foray into, into the world program yeah and, and and the other thing i see here i mean obviously knowing the the space a little bit and you know having been an equity derivatives trader and and knowing a lot of folks in in that space you know you got the merrill lynch desk was a pretty good desk well then obviously it became you know b of a but for for a long time even post-merger i mean people wore merrill lynch on their sleeve and, and as a badge of honor and uh you know those were were coveted bots, you know, I'd say even, you know, subprime pre blow up, you know, attracted, you know, some of the best students. So you must have done a few things well there. From a positioning standpoint, you said you guys navigated 08 relatively well, you know, for, for listeners who don't necessarily understand volatility trading, but at a high level, what was the, the overall positioning? I mean, again, for listeners, Typically, trading desks on Wall Street, you know, tend to accumulate positions from clients. And, you know, in environments like this, I'm just wondering, were you structurally in a position that allowed you to take advantage of uh, how volatility increased drastically during that period? Yeah, I think um, what you typically see in markets during highly volatile times are, you know, spreads blow out. Applied vol is really spiked. You get a lot of volatile volatility, volatility, yeah. so implied vol is kind of moving around a lot, which really for us as electronic desk where um, yes we had a lot of inventory but you know most of the time our goal was to basically get in and out of positions and, and um, you know the, the, the way with like options is that you don't necessarily get in and out of the same specific options you, you kind of normalize your risk um, across you know strikes expirations it, it's kind of like a normalized let's say vega and you kind of neutralize that risk right and the idea is you just kind of um, collect the that spread and so in an environment like that where where you have a ton of volume, a ton of activity. Um, the world's kind of falling apart. Spreads are really wide. You know, the, the edge for us market makers really um, increases, right? And then you get a lot of two-way flow. The volatile is very high. So even if you're accumulating positions, you, can, you have the opportunity to get in and out of it, right, over time. And so, you know, that, that overall was a good, you know, great time to, to be in the vol markets, right? Um, I think for us, you know, uh, my first boss, and actually collectively, you know, everyone at desk actually a lot of them, you know, still work together actually at Tower Research. And my CTO currently um, at Ledger Prime, it, you know, that's where I met him on the Merrill desk. And then, you know, we, we stayed in touch over the years. But my first boss, Albert, and I was the CEO of Tower now. He, you know, was a great risk manager, right? You know, great trader, um, made sure to always kind of cover the tails, um, you know, kind of taught me trading and, and managing and overall kind of options portfolio and how to do it correctly. You know, I think a lot of that was, was kind of instilled in, in um, 
you know, Ledger Prime and everything else, right? So I think that, that was a great experience for, for us. So you're saying even during the crisis, Flow was still healthy two-way. Was it because you're trading small, smaller size with the electronic book or just generically Flow continued to be a healthy two-way? Yeah, I would say it was pretty healthy, um, you know, pretty healthy two ways in, in general. I think electronically, there were just pockets of like huge vol spikes. And then, you know, you get like some Fed announcement and um, the market would rip and, and it would come back down. Um, so just a lot of like headline risks, kind of maybe akin to like the environment now to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and back then it was, you know, just bankruptcies left and right right in, in, in the traditional markets and uh, firms that that was you know a really really interesting time and, and you had a lot of players in the markets right you, you had like vol traders you had directional funds that needed to hedge uh you had credit funds you know jumping into the um in, into like the options markets to Maybe converts um, also yeah exact converts like relative value um between between like cds's and, and downside puts and, and whatnot um so just a lot of like interesting back and forth flow um, that was kind of hitting the books, um, which made it, you know, pretty, um, pretty liberal. And this was equities at the time, single stocks or just index or both? Uh, both, both. Yeah. Got it. Did you run any dispersion books or did they? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, you know, we ran some dispersion, like top 50, top 100, you know, yeah, dispersion. But I mean, back then, right, I mean, we didn't, we didn't really touch this, but you had like single stock variants, right? I mean, that kind of blew up the whole market back then. And, and then after two of those, and they kind of just disappeared, right? Because <laughs> everyone kind of realized the dangers of, of running single stock variants. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the whole correlation dispersion, you know, that, that concept yep. doesn't really exist in crypto, right? Not yet. And, you know, that, that's an area that you know, I missed, right? Because it was pretty interesting to run you know, variant swaps and, and dispersion books, right? I think that's yep. pretty interesting. It's also, yeah, a good way to, to, to be positioned structurally when, when things go wrong. So then you, you move on to, I think, UBS, right? And uh, is there sort of a similar role and you're just growing into just bigger book and obviously getting more money and getting promoted? Uh, is that sort of the path you get called into a new seat? Yeah, it was honestly exact same desk same products competitor to Merrill um, at UBS. It was more of a global desk. They had people in Europe, they had people in Asia. Ultimately, it was it was just kind of a bigger role for me as a trader, you know, bigger book in general. And, and so you know, I took the opportunity to uh, to, to do that. But, it, you know, it, it was it was literally the, the exact same kind of style of trading and, and strategy. And that's that's at the Stanford football field, right? Is that where you guys were at? Yeah. So about, uh, for about two years, I, I did the whole, you know, reverse commute. It was, uh, brutal cause you know, I get up at like five fifteen every morning and catch the grand central train and, um, yeah, like two and a half hours of commuting a day. Right. But it was actually pretty productive cause on the train is literally nothing else to do. And you know, you just read and stuff. Right. So like basically I got my like CFA and, and, you know, Kaya back then, uh, just like on the trains of, of you know, UBS. <laughs> <laughs> putting putting time to use, uh, good use. That's great. Yeah, no, I, re I remember that trading floor because we visited and uh, when I was in business school, uh, actually interviewed with UBS. And uh, yeah, I remember that, that uh, literally it's a football field. Like it's, yeah. it's just a gigantic yeah. trading floor. Yeah. But in, uh, in 08, because we recruited in 08, that floor quickly became empty. So it was very eerie because you had this giant floor yeah. and you had no one on the floor because everyone got laid off. Right. These were very bizarre times, very bizarre times. When do you actually realize that you, you know, you want to start something 
of your own? Like what, what's the transition that gets you to basically switch into like a Silicon Valley mindset, go out and strike on your own? I'm assuming with some partners, but what's the story there? You know, 2012, 2013, vols were dying down, right? The markets are kind of normalizing those QE and I think the electronic business has gotten super competitive, right? Uh, everyone was kind of touching it. And just through like over time, like, you know, Dodd-Frank and, and the regulations about prop trading, et cetera, kind of eroded um, everything at the banks, right? So our presence and footprint, you know, at, at UBS and, and generally was, was kind of decreasing. So I, I spent four years at UBS and, and moved back actually to Merrill, but on their institutional vol trading desk, trading like commodities, equities, but again, vol, but more like wholesale, right? So like large blocks facing off instead of electronically, you know, facing off against counterparties. Right. And that actually was a great experience because you kind of learn about like how to sell, you learn how to take down like massive amounts of risk. There are a lot of like nuances with learning about who good counterparties were, bad counterparties were really smart ones and kind of leaning your book to go with or against certain counterparties. So, so I actually learned a lot of that. And I think that was actually pretty relevant, has been more relevant to a certain extent, you know, trading in crypto. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I spent the year there, learned a lot, but ultimately, you know, I don't really see myself doing that full time, just, just being more on the customer facing institutional sales side. Um, that, that's not really what I typically, you know, I am comfortable with. And so my, my close friend from college, Chris, you know, we stayed in touch. He was in quant finance as well. He was kind of leaving his field um, and want to start a company, right? I, I think, you know, get to a certain age before like you have like a family and kids and you start to think about well, what else do you want to do other than just like sit in front of the screen and, and trade, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, we're comfortable. We, we saved a bit of money. And, and so we felt like it was a good time to, you know, give something a, a shot, right? And he started first, you know, he, he actually came up with World Cover and, you know, it was you know, based off of a research interaction with a professor called Chris Rudry who yelled at the time. Uh, but he did this study essentially where he basically, it was in Ghana, rural Ghana. He was an insurance expert, uh, micro-insurance expert. But he essentially did a field test where he gave you know, two groups of farmers, smallholder farmers. One he gave essentially capital to just like money. And then the other he actually gave insurance to. And then he studied this over, you know, several growing seasons and observed the behaviors. And what he kind of noticed from, from his research was those who received capital tended to save, right? Because, you know, if, if your crops um, are damaged or you lose your crops, you need to have savings to make it to the next growing season. Whereas if you had insurance, um, what he noticed was actually people tended to invest all their money and remaining capital into the um, farms and crops and actually over time um, their output was you know actually a lot more than than if this received capital right and so he realized that farmers at least smallholder farmers there were, were actually risk constrained and not capital constrained right and um, by unlocking that risk you can actually unlock the, the kind of output that they could and, and able to generate right and so that was a very interesting study you know this is an area where uh, insurance to a certain extent, uh, and we were um, looking at creating insurance products parametrically, right? And that involves basically taking satellite data, packaged into standardized contracts, um, insurance contracts. And in that sense, actually resembled like financial instruments, almost like put options, right? Yep, absolutely. And so we were looking at drought insurance, let's say, where if it doesn't rain for like eight days in a row or nine days in a row or 10 days in a row in a certain 
like a hundred meter by a hundred meter plot, whoever bought the insurance for that plot will, will get it paid out, right? And so you could actually price these similar to just using like pure data. I mean, obviously it would have helped to have like a meteorology like background and whatnot, but you know, you kind of do the Wall Street fashion, right? Where you, you do like data science, uh, fundamental like data science that was correct. And you kind of just slap a premium yeah. on top and then over diversification, you know, and, um, and so we, we trialed that, we created a platform. So we weren't taking the risk down ourselves. Obviously we, we created a platform where we would connect that risk with asset managers or reinsurance reinsurers that, that wanted this kind of uncor- truly uncorrelated risk, right? Cause like rainfall in Ghana is not correlated to the S and P 500 yeah. or whatever. Right. Um, it, it just, right. So there was true diversification and you know the yield back then for this kind of product was was probably like 10 to 15 percent annualized so it's pretty good you know there was definitely a lot of demand from the institutional side that no question but you know our our jobs and and the main difficulty was was rolling up small micro insurance contracts right into something that that could be profitable because the the unit economics is very thin and, and tight so how do you do that across millions of of smallholder farmers where, you know, the distribution channels are actually very, still very manual sales, heavy face, um, you know, face to face heavy and, you know, creating, how do you sell a product that pretty complex, right? Um, so those are some of the initial difficulties that we face. That's very interesting. So suddenly you've got this business opportunity. I'd like to say it's also like a worthy cause because there's, there's almost like a, an emancipation aspect and access to, you know, risk management tools that, and just on the whole financial services to a part of the global population that, that wouldn't necessarily have access to that. So there's a whole thesis there that I think is pretty noble. And then there's your financial instruments, contingent claim background that kicks in. I'm assuming you play a big part in, in designing that. And then there's also learning how to sell to institutional investor partners and selling them an investment product, right? I'm assuming you're you're going out hat in hand and pitching this to what are the types of investors you started b- building relationships with? Were there traditional allocators, uh, endowments, pension funds, mm-hmm. family offices, or who was who was interested in that? Initially, just kind of like high net worth individuals, but there were some, I would say like reinsurers and asset managers like the Nafila who specialize in this kind of, or like a Stone Ridge even, right? Yep. Like they're kind of yep. reinsurance fund. They specialize in this type of risk. Ultimately, their clients in the background are like the endowments and pensions of the world, right? That, that want that high single digits to low teens kind of returns that are uncorrelated. And, you know, it's, it's perfect for them, right? Um, in a kind of diversified portfolio. And then obviously on the, on the customer side of things, yeah, I mean, it was basically like sorghum or, you know, like farmers, you know, smallholder farmers in West Africa and eventually East Africa. And so, you know, very, very different customer base. But we, you know, we hired a local team scale that to like over 50 individuals, you know, we, we, we kind of touched um, hundreds and thousands of, of end customers. It's hard to go through a career, like up to where you are without some setback or some failure of some sort, right? Whether it, you're part of a team, you work on a project, doesn't work out, bad trade, or, you know, you start a company and you know, what was the outcome of this? Were there any, you know, noteworthy like setbacks or failures or things that, you know, helped you grow and, and learn? Yeah, so so I um and I sat down for about three years, but ultimately I, I was a CEO, co-founder, but I, I stepped back because you know at the end of the day I think the longer term, while extremely interesting, I, I couldn't one see myself because we're always working in developing markets. I couldn't really see myself going every other month or, or so back to at least sustainably, you know, with, with family, et cetera, over the you know my my career and, and life. Um, just constantly traveling, right? Yeah. 
and then two, you know, I kind of realized after a, a three-year break, and, and you know that that I miss, you know, the financial markets to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, this was 2017, and of 2017, and so I, I started to look back uh, for a way back back to kind of the markets, right? World cover continued to go on until about 2020, end of 2020, actually. You know, ultimately, I think COVID had a large impact on it. It, it was difficult to to do these kind of like personal or face-to-face kind of sales aspects of it. Yeah. So the, I think that had a very negative impact and then ultimately closed. But I left World Cover, um, you know, end of 2017, my partner stayed on. In 2017, it was kind of right time, right place, right? Like crypto markets was all that followed and, and traded on my personal basis since like 2012, 2013. You know, just sitting on their trading desk, you kind of hear about esoteric things that are moving, you know, hundreds of percent yeah. um, over time, right? Over a short period of time. And I read, I, I, uh, read the white paper back in like 2013. I had owned a bunch of Bitcoin, um, went through the whole Mt. Gox thing and everything. And, you know, I, I kind of stayed away from the markets in 2015-16 just because it was quiet. And, uh, you know, I, I was starting to question about the viability of, of, the, of that whole industry. But in 2017, kind of caught my attention again as it was kind of the first mainstream bull market. But really, more importantly, I think it was the rails and everything and tools and everything that was getting built up in crypto at that time. And I took a hard look at it and basically um, concluded that it was liquid enough, large enough that we could probably actually take a lot of our, our previous strategies um, that were deploying in traditional markets to crypto and, and make it a lot more lucrative. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I met, I knew the founders of a holding company called Ledger Holdings from college actually, but, but I met them and they, owned an exchange called Ledger X, uh-huh. which is a cryptocurrency derivatives exchange. And um, they just got into licenses to basically, you know, clear um, and actually be regulated by the CFTC in the US to clear and, and trade like Bitcoin um, options, yep. right? Uh, which is a huge milestone. They were the first to get it. And when they got the licenses, you know, they, they had a lot of money they raised from traditional fintech investors. And they also wanted a current asset management arm, essentially initially to be the liquidity provider market maker for the exchange. Yep. And so it was kind of the right time, right? I, I um, basically helped them spin um, this division up, which was called you know, now Ledger Prime. And they seeded me with you know, their, their capital. Uh, I recruited Johannes, who's my CTO now, who I used to work with at Merrill. It was just the two of us for a while, right? For, for the first like year, year and a half, just building up the infrastructure, the pipes, the strategies. You know, initially, we were just doing like uh, market making, arbitrage, pretty simple stuff. Doing some like options market making on like Ledger X, but really the, the whole options market was pretty small, um, very, very small back then. You know, we, we hit, we immediately hit like the bear market, right? So like it was, it was pretty brutal. Like just like, I mean, the bear market now is, is brutal, but like the bear market back then is, was even worse in my opinion, because there just wasn't a lot of things to do, right? It's not like there was DeFi. It's not like there was like a robust options market. You know, you could trade like forks, you could trade like various altcoins, but really the liquidity and everything just not wasn't nearly as much as it is now. What is your mindset at the time? Like you just came out of this entrepreneurial journey and at the three-year mark, you're like, all right, this is not going to be for me long-term. I can't do this. You come back and you're like, all right, let me get back to Wall Street. And then suddenly there's like this conversation, right place, right time. However, then you get back to like some kind of a bear market. And to your point at the time, like there was an existential question, that question right. mark, right? I mean, right. you could really make a strong case for that. What is your mindset at the time? Like, how do you, how do you go to work every day and keep 
the optimism up? Like what's driving that at that stage? Because I think it's easier yeah. to be optimistic right now, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you even see it in the price action, right? I, I, I may be wrong and people will yeah. quote me on this. I, I think we've put a bottom in on some level, but at the time, like what, what was your mindset? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like um, back then it was, you know, it, as you correctly pointed out, it was, it was existential, right? Um, now it's more just about like, well, when, once the whole macro thing gonna like die down and you know, when is capital gonna get redeployed, but the space is gonna stay around, right? Yeah. So for me, you know, getting back, I, I still wanted to continue to be an entrepreneur. I, I think I just wanted to do something more, I would say like grounded and, and um, just, just kind of more like financial markets focused. So, you know, the, the startup aspect of it in, in financial markets was, was kind of perfect. Yeah, I mean, I would say it was difficult. There, there were some days when I think like Q3, Q4-ish before kind of the, the final capitulation where like vols were like in the 20s or 30s in Bitcoin and it was really not doing anything. But, you know, I, I think I, I never really, yes, a collective industry that there were doubts, but I, I think personally, you know, I didn't really think it was actually going to like disappear. I wasn't sure when kind of the activity and everything was was going to um, pick up again. I, I think that was a, that that had a lot of question mark. It was going to be like six months, two years, et cetera. Uh, I, I didn't really know because I didn't really have the experience back then. But just even back then, I think the amount of like capital and talent that was still entering the space, not no nearly as, as much as it is now or in the past year, but even back then, I think it was pretty clear that, that a lot of the um, really smart and, and really like top-notch kind of like investors were still putting money into, into the space um, and, and still building. And I think that kind of helped collective as a community, just knowing that, you know, you weren't alone, I think helped a lot. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's always telling looking at it through history, just, just following kind of the smartest people and the money and where they're going, you know, usually t- tends to be right. So... Who are you hanging out with at the time also? Like I'm assuming also that morale, you're talking about smart people entering or being in business or, you know, becoming friends and industry friends with, with some of the folks like, you know, what is your crypto network at the time? I would say it was very different, right? I think initially when we started, it was, well, I had a Wall Street mindset where like initially at least where you know, Wall Street, you don't really like, you network, but you don't really share much, right? Everything, it's, it's kind of like you eat what you kill and everyone has the mentality of not sharing anything and not really like being buddy-buddy except your, your closest circles. Yep. So initially, you know, it was kind of just heads down and building. Being market makers on LedgerX, obviously we knew a lot of the traditional institutional players that were kind of surfing the space and, and looking at um, trading crypto in a regulated fashion, which obviously LedgerX could, could provide. And so I knew a lot of the US counterparties actually pretty well uh that were kind of early in the stage some funds some like traditional firms so none of the crypto native crowd and, and also like back then we we're pure quant right we weren't doing like early stage investing we weren't doing there was no DeFi. it's not like I, I needed to care like what projects we're doing we weren't like investing in icos like none of that really mattered right yeah so really it was kind of still just like more traditional firms as opposed to like crypto natives right i think I didn't really ultimately get to know more of the or, or globally the the kind of crypto native crowd probably until like probably like 2019. You know, made a trip out to Singapore, met a bunch a bunch of like the Asian players. They were a lot more at the forefront of the industry back then. I would say just because the regulations and everything they didn't need to care about. Whereas you know, sitting in the U.S. was difficult. Yeah, met a lot of the people that I continue to be you know friends with and have stayed in touch like qcp and, and others and, and some of these firms have been around for for a long time now 
and yeah, I, I would say, you know, I, I kind of opened my eyes that how much more opportunity there was outside of the U.S. to a certain extent. And, you know, we, we kind of in, in 2019, we, we also actually launched the current the, the fund, right? The, we were initially just trading principal and prop capital. And yeah. we took some of the prop capital and, and, and then in 2019, you know, launched the, with outside capital. And so we, we got a lot more capital. We had to diversify and expand our um, kind of uh, growth and, and strategies. And, and so we started to look, you know, more globally in terms of the opportunities. I'm assuming LedgerX is giving you like also working capital to build it out, right? The first year or two. Because one of the things that the listeners will want to understand is, you know, it's like starting any, it's like a tech startup, obviously that the business is fairly prescriptive in terms of how you get paid, but then, you know, the ingenuity goes into like being the best trader out there and building the best technology that supports the research factory. But so you're, you're funded, right? It's not like you're bootstrapping it. Yeah, exactly. We, we were lucky, you know, to have, um, obviously from day one, you know, the, the holding company to, um, you know, have the patience, but also the, the funds to kind of bootstrap us. Got it. And so then, you know, you're still a team of two. You decide, is that you driving like, hey, we should start an actual asset management business or is it just a collective thinking, you know, with the holding company that, that you want to get into that game obviously helps again with providing liquidity, more money in the system. But what was the thinking there in terms of starting a, an asset manager? Definitely. It was a collective decision. You know, the, the market was starting to, to see some green shoots, right? This is Q1 of 2019. And so it, it felt like we needed more capital to really, you know, potentially take advantage of the next wave. It, it made sense to see if we could essentially leverage you know, some of the holding companies, existing some holding companies capital and grow that into an actual fund right? and, and take advantage yeah. of a larger capital base, more opportunities um, and, and see what we can do with that. Is it a case that some large investors came to you and said, we'd like to do this, or you actually went on a roadshow to, to raise capital at the time? Yeah, we, we went on a roadshow, definitely talked to a lot of investors. You know, we found one, one investor who anchored it, was our largest investor, obviously from day one, and have continued, ha had continued um, throughout the next, um, you know, several years to be our largest investor. So they were a great partner and, you know, they took a chance on us. And, and I think, you know, we obviously made the money, but it definitely helped to have those early kind of believers and, and partners, you know, to uh, uh, help you grow. Right? And at the end of the day, like you don't want to be dealing with like 50, 100 investors, you know, especially when you're a startup because that takes time and, and it's it's difficult. Whereas if you just have like a small handful of investors, it, it makes your life a lot easier. Yeah, no. And it's one thing that is a is a common pattern. I mean, it, look, it's true with, even in builders. Right. And and it's true with, with most businesses. And this is where, you know, there's a certain in efficiency and opacity in the market and for listeners to understand like it takes hustle it takes positioning it takes being and uh, developing relationships because it's not just a matter of skill or quality of the idea it's it's just being able to put that in front of someone or a group that wants to deploy capital against that thesis and inevitably the early days are always about like you're sitting in a meeting and someone's taking a chance on you they, they're believers i think you use the word believer it's not, you know, when you're past the three-year mark and, and, you know, you're within the norms of like a portfolio of things that people, allocators are going to look at to deploy capital against, then it becomes, okay, how does this fit into my portfolio? What's the team? Let's do due diligence and then make some decisions at the investment committee. But when you're so early days, I think it's important for people to, to remember that, you know, it's going to take that relationship, that rapport and the risk that the other side is taking saying, we're, we're going to back these guys 
get behind it. So I, you know, that I think is important that it doesn't get lost in translation. It's not as easy as like, Hey, you're going to apply there and send a hundred business plans or, or decks and it's going to catch on. It's, it takes more work and hustle and quite frankly, luck at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Do you think that you guys were highly differentiated at the time in your approach? I think so. I, I think, you know, it took a t certain amount. I mean, we, we always kind of pitch ourselves as a derivatives and, and options business, right? I mean, the options market was tiny back then, but yeah. I always had the belief that like, if, if this was actually going to be a, a true asset class, you know, the, the options market would be multiples, you know, uh, multiples of like the spot markets, right? Like any other asset class options is 20, 30 exercise spot markets. Right. And so if it was going to mature, you know, that would be where the opportunity and volume and, and trading would be in. And really that back then there were no like option, true, like options, electronic market makers. Right. And so, you know, we we're probably a couple of years way too early, but, um, that was a, that was kind of the pitch, right. It was, you know, Hey, like, we're not just like another art fund. We're not just like another, like, like directional fund. This is a small market now, but it's going to grow and, and we're the experts in it. Um, we're not going to like lose money because, you know, we're, we're kind of just trading options around and uh, market making the options markets. Um, it might be like small and not too scalable initially, but it's going to be di differentiated from like your, your, you know, your other exposures. Right. And, and so I think that's what that pitch, I think, you know, what resonated with with our early investors. I mean, we were definitely, you know, too early, but I, I think over time we, we, we saw it kind of um, the rewards from that. I think you, you also shared with me that you, you took an approach of building an infrastructure, something that I subscribe to, right? I think it's important in order to have flexibility to iterate on the research front that you build the infrastructure. So as too many teams go out and they build these silos of trading strategies, even code around those if they're systematic. But then what it creates is they're reinventing and recoding all these different siloed systems. Sounds to me like you took an approach of we're going to build an information architecture to support different buckets of strategies. Is that the right way to, to think about it? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, again, maybe I was a little bit too early, but um, and, and maybe just coming from the traditional markets world, but I always um, subscribe to the idea that if you see it in, in traditional markets over time, right, strategies, their alpha just erodes very, very quickly yeah. um, over time, right? And I knew that if you if we dedicated everything to just one one set of strategies, um, you know, we, we will live and die by it. And it felt like, um, again, if, if this is a real asset class and a lot of the traditional capital was going to enter the space, um, that alpha would probably erode over time, right? And so, you know, back then it was like smart arbitrage. But, uh, you know, I, I think the idea was like that in itself was not going to last forever. And so, I, you know, we needed to make sure, like, how do we grow and iterate to the next stage um, when the market inevitably kind of catches up, right? And so, I mean, for us in the early days, I would say, you know, the first couple of years, purely like a market neutral fund, but we, we made sure to, to always have like kind of a multi-strat approach, right? We, we had a bucket of like spot arbitrage, market making. Uh, eventually that's like the perps market and everything um, grew and, and there were more instruments, you know, we would do like um, basis trading, funding arbitrage, cash carry, obviously options and derivatives, but you know, that, that grew, um, didn't really start to really, um, take off until like 2019, 2020, but yeah, I you know, quantitative systematic and, and market neutral. And at the same time, you know, how do you, it's difficult to scale like a completely market neutral fund, um, yeah. back then. And so, you know, we, we always experimented and carved out a small bucket of our, of our balance sheet for, I would say like stat slash trend following like strategies, um, long short. So I knew that that was always um, there um, in terms of like scalability. 
but how do you do it in a way where you know you don't risk like blowing up or you don't risk like huge volatilities yeah. and drawdowns, right? Um, so that that was an area that that we always you know had, um, and, and the idea was you know over time I, I think even to this day to a certain extent I always kind of liked the Millennium or or quant, yeah. world quant kind of model where um, they had like just top-notch architecture infrastructure etc across the firm and that but like really anyone could plug into and you could plug any strategy into like a comprehensive like risk dashboard or execution engine and you could just plug and play like any like strategy and portfolio manager and and that was kind of always the goal over the long term was to create something like that where it could support many many different strategies it could support um, external managers internal managers you know that that model scales right i think as long as you, you have like a robust kind of execution and risk monitoring system and that was kind of you know always the goal was uh, developed into something like that um but yeah you know we, we just had to tack on individual strategies you know one by one you know, ultimately, I mean, at this stage, you can, across the various buckets of strategies, you can, on a unified basis, look at the execution layer as well as risk an aggregate, right? And then drill down into it. I mean, do you as a CIO now have the ability to look at your entire firm's risk and, and make decisions or just, you know, be on top of the information? Is that where you are right now? And did you achieve that goal to, to have this? Yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely, right? I, I think it helps um, to be like, you know, one of the few individuals that, that can see like comprehensively the firm's risk. Um, you know, for better or worse, we, we try to keep it generally kind of siloed because it gets distracting when, when different traders and portfolio managers. I mean, it obviously helps. Everyone's free to communicate, share re as much resources and positioning as they want. But I think it, it becomes a distraction sometimes when different managers start to like look at other managers and, and what they're doing, et cetera. And we, we keep it pretty um, from like a payout or whatnot perspective, pretty like formulaic as well, just to keep it pretty objective overall. As a CIO, it, it helps um, to obviously have like the comprehensive view and, and manage overall firm's risk and portfolio risk and, and hedge as needed. Yeah, straight out of the uh, the Millennium Playbook. I mean, literally, I mean, when I was there, I mean, you quickly uh, realized it, intentionally, even in the way people are seated, that in order to limit cross-pollination and affect the contribution to the covariance matrix of all the portfolio managers, like you want to limit interaction and collaboration, right? right. That makes a lot of sense. Overall, though, as a CIO, are you... Do you have a generic view on what types of risks you like to be compensated on? I mean, ultimately, it, it, it's not that that investors are dogmatic. It's just I think you're always going to have some priors that are heavily influenced by what you've done in the past, what you've seen, and also just a preference, right? Like some people are comfortable taking directional bets because you know they believe they have an ability to synthesize the information. I'm thinking more like macro discretionary, for example. On your end, what do you, what types of risk do you like to be compensated on? I mean, I heard you know funding and and basis, you know market making. Obviously, all these are fundamentally compensated capital for providing liquidity, right? Essentially, offering the ability for counterparties to to execute and charging a something. So, overall, like, what's your inherent philosophy? And as you scale and as you're trying to to bring diversification, how do you manage your own bias and how you build the overall book of portfolio managers? Yeah, I think, um, and maybe, you know, it's, it's changing now. It's become a lot more competitive. Um, the expected ROI in crypto maybe is coming down. It was kind of always my philosophy that there's a hugely inefficient asset class and there would always be opportunity if you just stuck around long enough, right? And because the opportunity and edge was so high, like the expected returns, even for a market mutual fund was like 30, 40, 50, whatever, and then directional was in you know, hundreds. 
you didn't really have to get every trade right. You just had to make sure that you had enough capital for the next trade and there will inevitably be a next trade and opportunity that, that would be like a huge opportunity, right? And so that, that was always a philosophy I had was I would gladly, at least in crypto, and, and it's changing now because the, the ROI and comp competition is, is increasing. And so, you know, as expected returns come down, you can only spend so much on like tail protection and, and risk. But like my philosophy back then was really just cut losses, you know, very, very quickly, you know, cover your tails. And yes, it's expensive, but this is like crypto what we're talking about like the edge is massive like your ROI is huge like who cares if you're shaving like five to ten percent a year when it helps you survive and 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 trade another day uh, and your expected return is like hundreds of percent right um yeah so that that was kind of the go and i think it, it always i think the experience of like 2008 and, and 9 really stuck with me and I think even helped this year, right? With with just you know in May with, with Terra and everything, we, we had some exposure to Terra, but we kind of just immediately cut it. You know, the, the peg was, was starting to fall off, and we maybe in, in the experience of like of like immediately hedging it, maybe you, you incur some costs. But at the end of the day, uh, it, it's just not worth in crypto trying to protect like a couple of percentage points or a few percentage points when you're the bigger picture is, you know, the, the edge is like massive, right? Um, so, you know, cut your losses early and really in crypto, you, you just want to stick around to live another day because, you know, the opportunity is just there, right? And I think a lot of firms that, you know, unfortunately went under this year, you know, that, that was an issue, right? W was um, they, they probably had the way to get out and they, they might have had to take a pretty large haircut on it. But, you know, at least you, you survive, right? And I think in trading, you know, whether you're like a day trader or whatever, I think, you know, capital preservation is, is most important. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great lesson for, for people who are listening. And so this tells me that overall this year, and we, we think about the, the period that we're in right now is where we're, we're back where we started some of this conversation, but now more, you guys were able to weather the storm. And, and again, for, for people who don't necessarily know this, you know, a lot of the, the sell-off in, in asset prices, of course, there's a macro context, but there's a lot of technicals in this market. There's a notion of cascading liquidations that come from over levered positions. And thankfully the industry is still small enough and dollar terms, although much bigger than it used to be, that it, it certainly feels like those liquidations have played themselves out. But there was a time where, you know, I remember back in May, June, July, you know, it was pretty heavy selling, mostly as a result of these, you know, technicals. Because of that inherent philosophy of saying, look, the edge is, is big, we're okay protecting ourselves and paying for it. Did that contribute to helping you navigate this and, and stay afloat? You know, how, how was it just going into this? And then the other question I had was in your models and also in just your trading acumen, right? You've been doing this for, for a very long time. Did you kind of see it coming or did it take you guys by surprise? You know, with, with starting with the latter, I think we, we all had doubts about Terra. As a trader, I would say not necessarily an investor. You know, I always learn early on to, to not fight the market, right? And it kind of depends on your, your time frame to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, whatever happens, the market is right. Yeah. It doesn't matter, right? Like the market could say, you know, rational long than to say solvent. Yeah. So, you know, people might have had the right idea of what was going to happen to, to Terra and they might have shorted way too early and, and gotten like taken out, right? And so, you know, we all had our doubts, but I wasn't going to fight it. And I think ultimately when it did collapse, at least we were, we had like the notion that this could have happened and, and we kind of pulled out pretty early, right? So that, that's one philosophy. I think that that is um, pretty important as a trader is it, just at the end of the day, like the market is objective. It happens for whatever reason, but it's always right. And 
even if it's like wrong from a fundamental perspective, like, you know, the, the market is the, the judge and executioner, right? And so that, that was kind of all, always my philosophy. And then, yeah, I mean, you're right, right? The, the crypto markets are extremely reflexive, right? It's just um, so much of the collateral is denominated in crypto that as price of crypto goes down, that decreases your collateral and your margin and equity, and it just causes like more selling. You have all these like treasuries and DAOs that raise all this money and they're still sitting on these tokens that they own. And, and you know, as like the market goes down, well, they're kind of forced to sell to continue operations, protect the balance sheet. And it just causes this mass cascading of, of more and more selling that is kind of unique to a certain extent to the crypto world and now we're seeing miners and and financing and everything else so you know it a, a weird market but it's it's just way more like momentum and, and reflexive driven and we saw this you know in, in 2018 right that same thing with the ico markets kind of blowing up same thing with miners going to q4 of 2018 and so history times to you know tends to at least um, rhyme right yeah. and so i think all that just experiencing 2008 2018 really helped us at least not blow up this year yeah that's great it's great to hear yeah experience does matter at the end of the day and um having seen you know the pattern it's, it's pattern recognition be able to act on it and you certainly acquired a lot of wisdom based on what you're you're telling me so now as as we get towards the the end of this and we have a little bit of time left i want to talk about the future and i can't help not address like the the venture side of what you do i mean i know that you're you're pretty involved and you and i have even chatted about certain things that, that you've done in the space because i follow it also with with great interest talk to me about what you're excited about but first and foremost how you got started with deploying venture and participating in the build out of infrastructure what kind of role did you take? Was it going in big and leading deals or more like as you started being entrenched in the ecosystem, having these relationships, starting to see deal flow and then decided, okay, well, we need to get involved here. And, you know, did it start literally you personally getting decks and, and people saying, oh, do, do you want to get involved and then building it into like an institutional platform? Like what, what was the impetus there? Yeah, it was um, uh, summer, early, early summer of 2020, right? Um, I think the markets were recovering. I think it was clear we were entering this new um, paradigm of just like QE, right? It was the heart of, in the middle of, of the pandemic. There was kind of these new primitives that were really starting to take off, obviously DeFi now. We, we basically decided that, uh, I think a lot of venture cap and private investing, ultimately it's just juice beta, right? It, it matters, like if you invest in a VC fund, what matters is the vintage that you invest in ultimately. Right. And the yeah. site, part of the cycle that, that you're investing into and the valuations that, that really, because it's just, it's a huge beta trade. Right. And there's some parallel dynamics with it, but ultimately it's, it's just, you're getting early, you're getting at the right site and it helps. So that was part of it. The other part of it was, you know, we were starting to interact with a lot of different projects um, within DeFi and they needed liquidity providers and market makers for their products. Right. And for us being comfortable with, with kind of esoteric risks and also just comfortable being liquidity providers and market makers, we felt like we could actually help these projects. And that was kind of their main pain point, not just capital, but, but really like expertise for like 
providing liquidity for their platforms and, and project, right? Yeah. Like, which is actually kind of unique in the industry versus a traditional VC and, and whatnot. We felt like it actually made sense for us to, to create this kind of strategy where we could invest a line of interest, we could help them out, and obviously that'd be accretive to the token price. Or we can structure like market making deals, not for the tokens, but like for the actual products, which we think you know add more value long-term to, to the project's viability. And it was a very, very small amount of capital initially launched with, but the idea was, to align it with kind of our market making arm, bringing additional market making flow, and at the same time benefit from like the uh, growth of these projects and, and companies. Was there any deal that you've done over the last say, couple of years where you actually led, or was it always follow based on highly informed deal flow that that you've come across? Yeah, we never led because we never the we were never huge checks, right? We never intended to be this to deploy more than like ten percent of our of our AUM to venture, right? Because we were a liquid fund, yeah, and we had liquidity provisions in place that that would prevent us from locking up too much capital to liquid deals. But you know, I think some of the earlier projects that we worked on that were successful, either from an investment perspective or just from a market making perspective, are like Cashflow, right? Which which is launching its token yeah. next week. You know, with the first market makers for it, them, and really, you know work with the team to, to help grow and, and everything else. Um, you know, we were the first market makers for ribbon finance to all of like the DOV and options vaults we, we provide liquidity on now. And so a lot of these projects, you know, either through investing or, or market making, I think we had a you know, pretty large impact on obviously we benefited from that financially. So. Yeah. And your LPs were fine with, uh, obviously I'm assuming you sold your LPs on the value proposition and they went along with it. Yeah, that, that was, you know, the uh, it was never going to be that large. And the idea was we will keep the size of the venture book always less than the size of the GP stake in the fund. And so in the worst case scenario, if everyone had to redeem or we had to shut the fund down, the GP could at least absorb the liquid portion of the book and we could actually redeem everyone else. Right. So that, that was kind of the, the philosophy. That makes sense. So what are you excited about? I saw you know, two projects in particular that I thought we could touch upon. What is your vision for what is an increasingly multi-chain world? I mean, on the one hand, there seems to be just consolidation around you know certain layer ones, right? Just because of the network effect. But then you just invested in Thala Labs. Is this a hedge or core belief in the Aptos value proposition? What is your thinking there as far as like a multi-chain world? And for listeners who don't know what the Aptos project is, these are the folks that just rolled out a new layer one blockchain. A lot of the folks from the DM project, Facebook, and uh, the token just actually launched. What are your your thoughts there with this? Yeah, I think um, taking a step back, I think more broadly, you're, you're right, right? I think I, you know, I fundamentally, we we fundamentally believe in a a multi-chain world. We believe like ultimately in the long run, the end user, the, the consumer, the investor won't necessarily understand or, or honestly even care about what chain they're necessarily using, as long as the user experience themselves is top notch and great and resembles to a certain extent like just Web two, right? Um, but maybe in the back end, yeah. it's Web three, cross chain, multi chain, etc. And we believe it chain specific in terms of different functionalities and everything you know no one chain is, is, is a chain that, that can fit everything right whether you know it's eventually gonna be layer twos and, and whatnot um, but that's like a pretty pretty core you know philosophy for us the second thing is you know every single layer one I think needs at least the fundamental like as they're launching they, they need like the fundamental like tools and, and picks and shovels right everyone kind of needs like a lending market they need like an mm they need an exchange yes um, they need like a money market, whatever that may be. And, and so whether you're Aptos, whether you're Sui, whether you're Solana back in the day, if they're like, people complain that like, 
Um, there's not that much innovation because it is the same products on different chains. Like we saw like a slew of just the same kind of deals, like same AMM, same Lenny, like compound for X layer one, yep, yep. Uh, Aave for while it's the same, right? The flip side, it's kind of like, well, you, you need that to kind of bootstrap and grow a, a layer one ecosystem, right? Before like you can kind of connect everything together. And so that, that was kind of the impetus in, in investing into like um, Dalit, right? Um, is it's an important piece of the ecosystem, of any ecosystem, right? Not just Aptos. And so for us to kind of get exposed, I mean, Aptos itself raised at a pretty rich valuation and, and you know, we, we didn't participate in that specific raise, but we felt that as a catch up, you could invest into the various tools and, and picks and shovels for that ecosystem to get exposure, right? And we, you know, fundamentally believe at, at least that, you know, Aptos and, and other chains are going to survive and, and whatnot. And there, there needs to be similar projects across these ecosystems. And so, you know, that, that's kind of the, the philosophy in terms of investing into these type of projects. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's why I, was, I wanted to kind of close on, on this point, because I think it, it doesn't share your entire vision, obviously, but it does give an insight as to how someone who's been in the space now is probably considered as, as one of the, the smartest set of investors out there, how you're looking at the world and how you're, you're thinking thinking about where to, to deploy capital. You know, back to the point you said on, on those primitives and services that are built, I do believe though that every time Solan on Solana has features and specifics that did not exist, you know, and, and similar products on, on Ethereum before. So every time around, I think there is also innovation that occurs that then gets copied back onto like previous layer one. So it does contribute to the innovation and then it forces the world to think, you know, with interoperability. And the reason why I like concluding this podcast on this is that to me is just very encouraging for adoption over the long run, right? It just creates more environments for developers, business builders, product people to think about, okay, we can pick just like databases in the 90s, right? Saying like, what database, like Sybase was, you know, a financial services product was very geared to that. You had Oracle and Microsoft uh, rolled out a product. They address different needs. And, and I think ultimately it contributes to the vibrance of the ecosystem. Shilling, we got to the end of this conversation. I wish we could spend much more time and I look forward to continuing to chat with you offline on a number of topics, but I want to really thank you for sharing your journey today. It's been a pleasure. I've certainly continued to learn a lot about you. I continue to be uh, just very impressed with your line of thinking. So again, many thanks for participating today. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is produced by Radio Venture Management, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. This podcast is not an offer to sell or an invitation for an offer to acquire shares or interests in any entity comprising the funds mentioned in the podcast, nor is it an invitation to apply to participate in any entity comprising the funds. This podcast is not an offering or placement of shares or interest in any entity comprising the funds in any jurisdiction and should not be construed as such. No information in this podcast will form the basis of any contract. Any future decision by a recipient or other person to apply to participate in the funds will be based solely on the final offering and constitutional documents of the applicable fund entity once available and not on this podcast. This podcast is intended only for informational purposes and convenient reference and is not intended to be comprehensive. Certain information contained in this podcast may constitute forward-looking statements due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results, or the actual performance of the funds or underlying investments may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking statements. The information in this podcast has not been audited or independently verified. 
neither RVM nor any of its officers, employees, members, related parties, and affiliates, as applicable, makes any representation or gives any warranty in each case express or implied as to the fairness, accuracy, reasonableness, completeness, or correctness of this podcast or its contents. Accordingly, no reliance whatsoever should be placed on this podcast or its contents.